All right, um, summer's over. Just to let you know, that was it. <laughs> no. Well, apparently there's another heat wave coming, but I had, a, I had a dilemma this morning when I woke up, looked out the window and thought, I don't know where my socks are, I don't know where my jeans are, I don't know where my jumpers are, I have to have not been wearing them for six weeks because of the heat wave, so the rain has come and spoiled it all, but I think in a couple of times we're going to get another heat wave, it says. So that's coming. So summer will be back on, just postponed for a couple of days. But that's it. All right. Uh, if you've got your Bible, can you go to the book of Joshua? Joshua chapter 22. Joshua 22. We've been going through the book of Joshua as a church. We're nearing the end. Final couple of chapters. I'll do one this week, one next week. We've got our two-week break as a church. And then the final week, uh, Jeremy will do, we'll finish up Joshua at the end of August and we will be done. We'll have done the entire book by then. But before we go um, into Joshua, I want to just talk a little bit about um, my house. Now, when we moved into our house just over five years ago, we were renting when we came to start the church. We then got released finance. We could buy a house. We bought a house. And one of the, the beauties of our house that we lived in that we loved was we had quite a nice long garden. Um, so it was room. We had two children at the time. We knew they were going to grow up, active little boys. They, need, they needed space. We thought outside space would be a great place to run. And at the back of our garden, we had this little shed that was left by the previous owner and then kind of a hedge at the back of the garden. We thought, well, that's great. But then when we moved in and started looking at it, we realized actually this wasn't a hedge per se. It was kind of a wall of brambles and there was just undergrowth and stuff. And the back of our garden was actually a lot further back than we realized. It was kind of, there was this, it was a line of all these brambles and stuff. But actually, if you peered through, you could sort of see an old rotting fence 12 feet back. And you're like, well, oh, our garden's bigger than we thought. And as it happened, we'd been there a year or so, our neighbors were having the fence done, their fence next door, and there were some beefy-looking blokes who were putting the fence up, and I went and had a chat with them and said, well, as you're here, do you mind giving us a quote to clear that back, get all that, clear out the mess there? And they said, they gave us a quote, it's very reasonable, um, they definitely undervalued their work, and we said, right, we'll take it, could you clear that? And these guys turned up, and it was incredible to watch strapping men go at something together all day, kind of in unison. They just went at it, and they cleared the back um, of our garden. And what it revealed was a whole host of junk back there, which they hadn't counted on, in the quote, which is great um, for us. But there was, there was an old sun lounge back there. There was a, literally a window frame this big. It had no glass in it. Big UVB windows frame. And they'd said they'd clear everything and take it away. I thought, score. So it was great. So they cleared all this stuff out. And then and they went at it and kind of made it there. And they revealed this horrible fence. So when we said, well, give us another quote and we need to replace the fence. And so they just got this garden. So that was kind of round one. And seeing these guys do that. Then round two was on Thursday night. I got a bunch of guys together from the church. I bribed them with pizza and said, please come to my house, I'll give you pizza, and we're going to clear the rest of it. There were stumps in the ground, and there was a whole bunch of hardcore rubble that needed to be just ferried out, and we went at it. And I got introduced to something I just want to share with you today, this. I don't know if you're familiar with what this is. This is called a mattock. Does anyone know anything about mattocks? This belongs to Andrew Pinder in the church. He's currently leading one of our kids' team. They're perfectly safe because I've got the mattock. 
But there, and he comes, and when he starts using this, it is a thing of beauty to watch. This is now the official tool of Real Life Church. And this is an incredible influence for breaking up the ground and, and taking out stumps and all sorts of things like that. And so there was a group of us there, and we were there for a few hours on Thursday night, basically working together as a team, trying to clear this ground. And I think we did an outstanding job. We all got eaten alive, by the way, from bugs and stuff. That's why my legs are covered today. They don't look pretty, um, but we're stronger than that. So we got through that and we cleared it all up and as a team we worked together um, and we had a purpose in mind. I wanted it all cleared so I can grass it so my kids can have a longer football pitch is basically the the long-term plan. But that was our purpose. That's what we were after and we had a great time and I want to thank those guys publicly. Uh, We did it and I'm thanking you because I'm going to ask you about to help me with a bit more because we need some more bits to do. But I'm just leading up to that. But that's what we're at, and we were, we were in it together, and it was great. And what I want to look at today is that whole idea of being working together as a team, being unified in a purpose, and what, what that can achieve, and actually what it can achieve if you're not unified, what the detrimental purpose of that is. So if we go to your Bible, if you've got chapter 22, just give you an update if you haven't been around. We're almost at the end of Joshua we had the first is it six chapters, which were the preparation phase. We looked at all that, how the people of God had been brought out of Egypt after the, the 400 plus years of slavery, wandered in the promised land. They were now turned to take the promised land. God spent some time preparing them. We had the spies going into the land, Rahab praising God, who was a foreigner outside God's kingdom. Uh, they crossed the Jordan. They're in the land. They celebrated the Passover. And then the next few chapters... 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, with a warfare stage where they take the land. The story of Jericho and Ai and the northern and southern campaigns in the kingdom, that they then took the land. And then we looked at the next section, which we've just finished, which was the inheritance section of the book, chapters 13 through to 21, where the land that was promised to Abraham back in Genesis was finally given to the people. And for us, reading those sections can be quite dull and boring because it's kind of a list of names and places that we don't know about or where's that and it just it's like ugh, can be really dry reading but actually that was vital to the people of God because this is the the fruition of God's promise God had promised the people I will give you that land it promised Abraham and all his descendants you're going to have this and finally they'd got it and we saw the allotments for all the tribes every tribe went through and then finally we saw the allotments for the cities of refuge uh, for the places of uh, mercy and justice where people could go and then last week we looked at the allotment for the Levites which was different to the other tribes. And now it's kind of that bit's over and we're getting to the end of the book and we're finally kind of summing it up. So if we put the first bit of the passage up here, I'm just going to read it to you. You want to follow along in your Bible. It said, At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but you have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses the servant Lord gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents. 
Now to the half tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan, but to the other half, Joshua had given possession besides their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, go back to your tents with much wealth and very much livestock with silver, gold, bronze and iron and with much clothing. Divide the spoils of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh which is in the land of Canaan. We go to the land of Gilead, their own land, to which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. Okay, big idea. What we're going to look at today is God's people are unified through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's where we're heading. That's what we're going to get to. But this passage begins with an exhortation, a strong encouragement. And it begins with Joshua saying to these three, uh, two and a half tribes that they can go home now. Well, what's that about? Well, when they were coming to the land of promise in the book of uh, Numbers, Deuteronomy, um, they had to defeat some kings that came out and attacked them. And two and a half tribes said to Moses, can we have this land? And it was on the other side of the Jordan before they entered the promised land. And Moses said to them, yes, you can have that land, but... You must help your brothers, you must help the rest of Israel take the land that was promised them on the other side of the Jordan. So those two and a half tribes have been faithful to that promise and we saw that when we saw the crossing of the Jordan. All the tribes went through and the fighting men from Reuben and Gad and Manasseh also joined their brothers and said, we aren't going home until we've taken the land with you. Many years later, that has happened. And Joshua is saying to them, we've allotted all the stuff for these tribes on this side of the Jordan. You can go back across the river to your families that you left behind and join them and settle in your possessions. So this side in the promised land, they've all had their allotments, their possession, you know, Judah and Benjamin and Simeon, etc. You can go back to your land and settle. So it's a settling time. You are released from your promise. You have seen it through, kind of well done. Thank you for your help. You can now return home. But on going, he gives them an exhortation. He says, you've got to do something. If you're going to leave, that's great. But he says, check it out. It's verse um, 5. And he says to them, be very careful. And what does he say to them? He says five things. He says, you are to love God. You are to walk in his ways. You are to keep his commandments. You are to cling to him and serve him with your heart and soul. And if you remember back at the beginning of the book, what was God's charge to Joshua? It was the same idea. It was be strong and courageous, he said. He said, do not let the law of the law, my word, depart from you. Follow it very, very closely. And Joshua is saying, um, now passing on that command to these two and a half tribes, as you go home, you need to keep doing what we've been doing following God closely, loving him, going after him, not going after anything else. And that would have been ringing in their ears as they leave, as all those soldiers kind of go home to settle, to get the inheritance that they had been promised. And that is what his command was for them. And so they leave Shiloh where the tabernacle of God would have been, where the presence of God would have been, where they had the allotments or ceremony, where they'd worked all that out. And those men would have marched home And they would have had that ringing in their ears. Joshua blesses them as they go. And it says that they took home all the spoils of war that they'd got from the lands that they'd taken, all of God's enemies that they'd opposed. They took that with them. 
and they returned home. And it makes reference to the half-tribe of Manasseh has actually got land on both sides of the Jordan. It was quite a numerous tribe, so it got land on the far side where they'd been given, but also they'd taken some land they got to settle. So they were going home. Uh, with all their spores, and they were to share it out with the rest of the tribe who hadn't been involved in the campaign, probably the ladies of the tribe, the elderly, the children, so actually everyone would inherit uh, from what they've done. So everything is going well at this point. Let's read the next section. This is quite a longer one, but let's follow along. It says, And when they came to the region of the Jordan, that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan, in the region about the Jordan, on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of the family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed? against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar, this day in rebellion against the Lord. Have we not um, had enough of the sin of Peor, from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel." But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take for yourself a possession amongst us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, or make us rebels by holding for for yourselves an altar, other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things? And wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel. And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, The mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows. And let Israel itself know, if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did, not, uh, or if we did so, to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it. May the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us. You people of Reuben and people of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord. So your children might take our children to cease worship the Lord. Therefore, he said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. 
Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings, or sacrifice other than the altar for which our Lord, that's, uh, our God that stands before the tabernacle. When Phineas the priest and the chiefs of the congregation heard of the families of Israel who were with them, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst, because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. I think that's it. Is that for this section? Yes. All right. Crisis. Everything was going so well. And as with the story of the people of God, often something bad comes along. So, these guys are traveling home. And a crisis begins to develop. At this point, the story at the beginning, details are left out, but something goes wrong. The eastern tribes have left from Shiloh, where the presence of God is, and they're returning to their land. So what happened was, the people of God came to the promised land. Reuben, Gad, Manasseh took inheritance on this side of the, land, of the, this side of the Jordan River. Then they all crossed the Jordan River, and all the tribes because they'd sent their fighting men, took the land. They'd now in- divided up the land inheritance, and Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh were coming back to the Jordan. They get to the Jordan River, going to cross it to go home, and it says they built an altar there, and it says it's of imposing size. So this thing would have been massive. It would have been visible around. It would have been visible if you lived on this side of the river, and it would have been visible if you lived on this side of the river. It doesn't say exactly how big it is, but we've got to use our imagination and think, well, actually, it's got to be something to describe as imposing, of opposing size. So it's this big altar. And so they do that, and presumably then they head home, perfectly happy with what they've done. Meanwhile, on this side of the Jordan, the remaining tribes say, aye, aye, there's an altar that's been built there, and it's also been built in someone else's land. It was probably Judah's land, because that was down where they would have crossed the Jordan. So the tribe of Judah would have been rightly knocked and said, someone's built an altar in our land, that's not on. And all the rest of the tribe said, aye, that's not on, because there's only one altar in the tabernacle, and that's in Shiloh, which is where we've been meeting. That's where God's presence is. And God's very clear in his law that you don't build other altars, you don't sacrifice on. The only place you do it is in the tabernacle before him in his presence. And you don't go worship foreign gods. And that's what it looks like these two tribes have done. So they are absolutely livid as a result. I think we've gone all this way and you've immediately broken faith with what we're doing. They were, they were fearful for the unity of the nation. They were fearful for the people of Israel who served one God and that's what they're doing, that's what he's commanded. And suddenly, this, a group of them had broken away, it seems. And they were going after foreign gods and false gods. So they gathered together, and it says they were ready to make war, which seems like an extreme response, but actually, it, it, it shows the gravity of the situation and how serious they thought it, and how serious they took the holiness of God and the commands and the law of God. But they said before they, just, they, they started dropping you know, smart bombs and nukes on them, they sent a delegation. And it said they sent the heads of the, eastern, of the tribes who were on the other side of the Jordan. So there were ten tribal chiefs. They sent them down and they sent Phineas, 
um, who was the priest. He represents kind of God. He represents the spiritual side. So you've got the people of God being represented in the ten tribes. And then Phineas himself, as the one who ministers before the Lord, he is going as well as their representative. So they go, and I can imagine what it had been like if you were Reuben, um, Gad, or Manasseh. You know, when suddenly ten tribal chiefs turn up, and the priest, you can imagine this isn't going to go well. And they say, we need to chat. Can you imagine them getting a little bit defensive and like, what is going on that all you guys have turned up to talk to us? And so they go and confront them. And they, they lay it down really strongly. So they, they use this phrase, you have breached the faith. They use this phrase, rebellion, which in the context of God and his people are big words with serious ramifications. And that's what they accuse them on. And they say, you have built this altar. You've turned away from God. This is huge. You have put a division between God's people. You've kind of, you're going a different direction. We seek to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. You are going after foreign and false gods. And they basically um, reference a couple of situations. They represent this one, the sin at Peor, which was um, an event that happened back in the book of Numbers. I think it's Numbers 25, where um, a king who didn't like Israel being there hired this prophet called Balaam, to curse Israel. It's a funny story. And he tried to curse Israel, but he couldn't. He could only give blessings. Every time he tried to curse him, blessings came out on Israel. And he did it several times, and each time the blessing got greater. And eventually the king was like, you're useless. I've hired you to curse them, and you end up blessing them. I've got no use for you. So how am I going to deal with the people of Israel? And he thought, what What I couldn't deal with kind of by cursing and blessing, I'm going to deal with a different way. So what he did was they sent in the women who seduced the men of Israel and seduced them and they ended up worshipping false gods. They got involved in all sorts of sexual immorality and child sacrifice and just all the evil that God had said he hated and wouldn't for. Israel started going after those things. And as a result, judgment came on them there was a plague broke out and about 24,000 it said of the people of Israel died for what they were involved in. There was consequences of their sin, consequences of their breaking faith. And they reference it saying, you've done it again. This is going to happen again. And it added extra power because one of the guys who was involved with dealing with that was Phineas. Phineas was one of the ones who was so zealous for the holiness of God that he actually was involved in dealing with some of the people and actually killing some of the offenders. So when he turns up and says, it's like pure, can you imagine how they felt? They're like, "Uh uh-oh, Phineas is here. And he's referencing something back where a lot of people died. This is really big. This is a massive situation. And what they say to them is say, look, This is so bad. You need to come back and follow the God of Israel. They even say, if your land, the land that you've inherited, if that is causing you problems, the stuff that's in that land, leave it behind. Come into our land on this side of the Jordan and we will give you some of our inheritance. Your prosperity and what you have is not as important as your spiritual standing before God, is what they're saying. This is huge. Your sin is so bad it will cost you and it's worth giving up everything you had, all this possession, all this land, all this lifestyle, all this stuff and come and live on our side of the Jordan if it means you following the one true God. It means you being safe in that sense. It means you being spiritually clean and spiritually pure in what they're doing. 
And they also cite the other incident um, of Achan, which we've actually studied in Joshua. When they took Jericho, Achan sinned and, said actually, and actually took some of the things that were devoted only to God from Jericho. And as a result, he was judged and he was punished. And not only him, his family as well. And they're saying, actually, your sin is going to affect everyone. It's going to affect all your tribes and us because we're all the people of God. Your sin isn't just personal. It is corporate. It has a dynamic where it's going to affect more than just you. And they're basically saying, they're begging them, leave your sin, repent of your sin, stop worshipping false gods, stop sacrificing on this great altar that you have built. Remember us, think of us, because we're affected by it. And so they make this great plea to them. But then, thankfully... The two and a half tribes on the other side of the river, they, they are undone by what they've said. And if you look at their response, verse 21, it says they name God three times and they do it twice. It says the mighty one, God, the Lord. They call on the name of the Lord because they, it turns out there's been a misunderstanding. And so they call on God and say, no, that is not what we intended by this altar. That is not our purpose. And they call on God as a witness and say, no, our, our motives were good. Let us explain what happens. We serve the one true God of Israel. We're part of God's covenant people. We have no intention of turning away. And they appeal to God as their witness. And they explain why they did what they did. They said, actually, there's this, this river that runs between us is a natural boundary you know, you can't cross it. We find that even the world all over. You go to places and rivers just form boundaries between nations, between territories. It's just, it's normal. And they're saying, we're on this side of the river, you're on that side of the river, and you have the tabernacle at Shiloh, which has the presence of God in it. So we're not only removed a bit geographically, we now have this this thing between us, which is the river, and it separates us. And actually, what we don't want to happen is when we grow up, and we grow up, and our children grow up, that our children on this side get separated and get, and get rejected and say, you can't come and worship the Lord. You can't come and be part of God's covenant people. And we don't want your children on this side to grow up and look over and say, well, there's a barrier between us. You're obviously, you're not with us. You're not part of us. You don't want to be rejected. So we built this altar as a representative to point to something bigger and better and say, remember, we're all one people. And when they look at this altar of imposing size, as it's a copy of the altar over in Shiloh where God's presence is, they'll see that and remember, do you know what? We're all one people. We're not separate. We haven't been broken up. We all are the covenant people of God. We're all descendants of Abraham. We're all together in this. And hopefully, because this altar is there, the people on this side of the Jordan will see it and remember. And these people on this side of the Jordan will see it and know that you are part of us. And so that's what they're doing. And it says that um, after this impassioned plea, that there is a, a kind of a, a coming together and actually realizing, actually, I think we might have got the wrong end of the stick on this. So the nukes stand down, you know, and the soldiers can go back home. And we'll read, let's read the final part of the, the passage here. It says, Then Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priests and the chiefs, returned to the people of um, return from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad to the land of Gilead, to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back the word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. 
And the people of Israel blessed the Lord and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. For they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. So we have the kind of resolution of this. They came, they spoke, they gave a really kind of strong accusation saying, this is what we think you've done and if it is, it is truly terrible, not just for you, but for all the people of God. The people of the, Reuben, uh, the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh came back and said, no, no, this is what we really intended. And they heard it and they realized actually that was good. Your heart was right in this intention. And this, this big altar then becomes something called a witness, something that's pointing that everyone can look at to know that we are one people. And it's a symbol of the unity of God's people, that they're all together, no matter where they are in the land where they live, this side of the Jordan, that side of the Jordan, whether you live near the, the tabernacle or you're far away from the tabernacle, we are all God's people together. So what does this mean for us as a church today? I've got three things I just want to end with for us to talk about what it means to be a unified people of God and what we can take away from this. The first one, unity is destroyed by sin. Unity is destroyed by sin. What potential to happen in that passage was for the covenant people of God to be splintered and broken up. If the tribes on the other side of the Jordan were following false gods, were sacrificing, it brought disunity to the people of God because God had been very clear. I'm your God. I'm the one who looked after you. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who's given you this land and I've given you clear commands. You worship me and you worship me in this place and there are clear rules because of God's holiness how you approach him and how you worship him with the priests um, and the, the tabernacle and the sacrifices. And they're all detailed in the books like Leviticus and stuff. And they said, it's all very clear what you're going to do. But if they were following false gods, they were, they were going in a different direction. And that's what sin does. So sin, number one, sends you in different directions. If someone's following God and someone is choosing not to it, you're actually on divergent paths. You're actually heading in different directions. You cannot coexist and do the same thing and go the same way ultimately because you're heading different ways. There's some fundamental differences about how you uh, view the world, how you view people, how you view what's going on. And the eastern tribes were in danger, as it was perceived, of going the wrong way. Of going the wrong way. And so that's why they came to it. The other thing we learn there is sin is not just personal. The two incidents they cited, there was massive ramifications for the people of God, not just necessarily the committers, committers of the sin. When we sin, we do it. We lie, we cheat, we steal, we lust, we do all these things. Or sometimes we don't do things, we're not kind and gracious and good. But actually, it's not just us. Sin is not just personal. It has a corporate effect. Sometimes it's obvious. If I steal from you, you've lost out. There's an obvious enough. But even internal, personal things rob us. If we're angry and we're bitter, it comes out. If we're caught up in lust and stuff, we think no one knows about this, but actually it's going to have an effect on your relationships. And the point that's made from this story is actually you can't just word it away and say, well, it's just me, it's just my thing. It doesn't affect anyone else. It does. It affects you, it affects all your relationships. If you're married, it affects your marriage. It will affect your children if you have children. And it will definitely affect us as a corporate body, the church, because of what you're dealing with. 
It's like having an infection in one part of your body. You know, you get a, I've got under here, the, I've got great legs under here, but at the moment they're covered in bites and welts from um, all these flies that I got attacked with and I was using this the other night. Um, but the point is, I could just ignore them. I could just say, no, the, the, this bit's fine. This bit's great too. But this bit's fine. I don't need to worry about that. But actually, it's ridiculous. We're all part of one body. And so Mel, when Mel saw it one morning, it's not great to hear from your wife when you get in the morning. She's like, ah, what happened to your legs? Right, and she got rifling through the medical cabinet and got the... She gave me drugs. I wasn't sure what they were, you know, but I trust her. So she gave me some anti-something. There you go. So I had that, which is meant to help. If anything happens to me suspiciously over the next few days, it wasn't antihistamine, I'm just saying. But I'm sure I'll be fine. Um, but so I had that, but it's no good ignoring something just because and saying, well, this bit's fine. I can see, I can hear, I can speak. I'm all right. No, no. It affects everything. There's a wider dynamic to it. And the last thing there is sin has consequences. We saw that when we looked at Achan's sin. Back at the big, sort of Joshua, I think it was seven or something. We saw that. And then if you go back to Numbers 25 and you see what happened at Pure with Israel's sin, there are vast consequences. Judgment is coming. Judgment will come on sin. And if you're playing with things, there are consequences and there will be a reckoning for them. You will be found out. It will get exposed at some point. And so the plea for us today is that if you know that you're playing with sin and you're involved in something, you need to stop. You need to stop. There's that, there's that imagine that, that, that delegation of come and sat you down and said, this is what we see in your life. It's bad. You need to stop. You're in rebellion. There's something, and that's one of the roles that the Holy Spirit does to us. He, he provokes us, and he says, actually, convicts us and says, look, there's something wrong in your life. And it works quite well, because even as I'm saying it now, he's probably doing it in your life. You know, he's just bringing things up. That there's something there you need to deal with. Because it damages you, but it also damages us. It affects us, our sin. And when we know we're in sin, we need to deal with it. We need to confess it, which means we need to acknowledge it. We need to name it. We need to kind of get it out in the open. And confession involves speaking it out. This is what I've done. This is what I've done. I've lied. I've cheated. I've stolen. I've Whatever it is. And so when you do that, you have to confess it. I had to confess sin to my wife this week. This is what I'd done, the way I'd spoken to her. I had to say it to her. So what you do is you, you, you confess it, you say it. And it says you, have to, you repent, which means you turn around. You turn away from it. I'm not going to pursue it anymore. I'm not going to keep going down that line, that way, that direction. I'm going to go this way. I'm going to go after Jesus instead. I'm going to go after his laws and his holiness. And we also, finally, we refuse to go back to it. We're not going to go back to it. We've turned away. We're going to just move on. And if you know you're in a situation like that, you need to deal with your sin. I'll give you an opportunity at the end. If you know something going on in your life, you need to do that. And you, might, you definitely need to do it to God, but you probably might need to do it to someone else as well if it's against somebody else and talk to them about it. The second thing, unity must be fought for. It must be fought for. Being a unified people means sometimes having tough conversations. 
What was it like, do you think, for the ten tribal chiefs and Phineas going to Reuben and Gad and Manasseh? They had a long journey. They had to travel. They had to cross the Jordan. They had to go into their place, into their house, their home, their territory, surrounded by their people, sit them down and say, you're in sin. That's in essence what they were saying. That's a tough conversation to have. That's a tough conversation to have. But that's what they did. And they realized that they needed to do it. They acted swiftly, did you notice? They didn't just let them go off. They'll be fine. We'll give them a six months to see how it goes while they're sacrificing things on this altar and worshiping pagan gods. We know they weren't, but that's what they thought was happening. No, they were straight up. They were straight out. They saw their brothers and their sisters in danger and going off and feared the consequences for them and said, we've got to do something about this. We've got to go now. We've got to talk to them. And so that's exactly what they did. And this is vital for us. We need to do this. We need to fight to be a unified people. We need to, number one, we need to love people and care for them. You've got to start there. You've got to love them and you've got to care for them. You've got to actually have, feel good towards them. If you don't love the people in the church, then you need to start with that. You've got to love them, care for them, build good relationships, seek good for them, have a general heart towards them. Is I want your good. Can't know everyone in the church, but if you have that general heart towards them, the ones you do think, I want your good, I want you to grow in God, I want you to flourish as a follower of Jesus. That's what I want. You've got to be willing to have that tough conversation. Sit them down. I love you, I'm for you, but I've noticed this. <laughs> I've seen this. Can we talk about it? And be prepared to do that. You've got to be willing to forgive, because sometimes people do it to you. You know, sometimes you're the one who's been sinned against and you have to go and talk to them and say, actually, what you did, did this to me. You've got to be then willing to forgive them and move on and not hold the grudge. Because the danger is, you, you say, right, this is what you did. They say, yes, you did. And you're like, and yes, you did do that. Yes, you were terrible. And I'm going to remind you every day for the next few weeks how mean you were to me and not actually work in forgiveness when actually saying, actually... We've got to come together. We've got to get reconciliation. I forgive you for what you've done. Let's restore this relationship. And lastly, we need to be in community for that to happen. You can't do all that and be outside community. You can't just swan up on a Sunday and then leave and expect that to happen in your life. We've grown beyond that. We're too big for that, which is why we have our small groups. We have our life groups that we encourage, we implore, we exhort everyone to attend because there's an opportunity to build those relationships, do community, do life where these things can happen and come about so if you're not in a life group you need to get in one if you if you're lost come and talk to me i will direct you in the right way right place to get that done and last one we'll finish on this unity true unity is found only in jesus true unity is found only in jesus the altar that the eastern tribes built was a copy of the true altar that we know was in Shiloh at that time. Later it was in Jerusalem and in the temple. But it pointed to something bigger. We are the people of God. We are part of God's people, not because of this altar, this pile of stones or whatever it was built out of, but actually it's pointing to a greater, greater reality, which was where the presence of God was. And for us as believers, it's found only in Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. That's our place of unity. 
That's where we come together. That's the thing that binds us together, the people of God. Not just here in this little local place, but actually the people of God globally and eternally. All people, all the people of God. And that's what we come together. It doesn't matter what your language is or your ethnicity is or your social class or your education or how much money you earn or where you live. Any of those things, they don't matter. Our unity is found only in Christ. Because we all come to him the same. We all come to him as sinners in need of grace. We all come to him who men and women who have fallen so far short of God's glory. And we need it. We all then end up in the same place, which means we are sinners saved by grace. We become saints. We become holy and righteous. We become adopted into the same family where he is our father. And we aren't better or worse than anybody else in that family. It doesn't matter how young you are, no matter how old you are, it doesn't matter how long you've been following Jesus, no matter how smart you are, how well you know your Bible, whether you prayed this morning or not. It doesn't matter because it all stands on falls on him, on his death and his resurrection. And that is our ultimate unity. And when everything else is falling apart, that's what we come back to. That's what we come back to. And this is represented to us by one of the things that we celebrate regularly here at the church, which is the bread and the wine. We celebrate that regularly. That is a sign of our unity. I'd love you in your life group this week to do that. I know many of you do it every week. We do it in our life groups mainly. Sometimes we do it on a Sunday. But that is a symbol of our unity. As we break the same body and we share the same cup, we say we are together as one people. There is no difference between us in that sense and we are celebrating it till one day what we see here, this kind of, this sort of physical thing we have is then celebrated in reality in a heavenly kingdom with Christ himself at the great banquet, the Lamb. And we actually see him face to face and have that wonderful banquet with him together. And so my final question for you today is, number one, are you united with Christ? Are you a follower of Jesus here? Because if you're not, I submit to you, you need to be. Because as it stands, you are under the wrath of a holy God who loves you as in for you, but you are guilty of the sins that you have done when you've offended him and you've gone your own way and you need to repent of your sin and you need to turn around and you need to follow him. That's what all the people in there who are Christians have done. And if that is you, I'd love to talk to you at the end. If you are a believer here, are you celebrating that unity? Are you enjoying that unity? Are you doing everything you can that, it, that, that depends on you to live at peace with one another? Are you sorting out relational things that come up? Are you seeking people's good? Are you loving them? Are you involved in the community of the church? Are you part of life groups and just living that out? Are you doing all those things? Because if you're not, I'd love you to do that. We need to stop. Can the band come up, please? We're going to spend some time worshiping. Can you all stand too? And I'd love to pray for us as we finish today. If you just want to close your eyes. I just want to start, before we sing, just dealing with any sin that you know you need to deal with in the church, in your life. You know what it is right now because God's just bringing it to mind. And I'm going to give a moment. I want you to pray. I want you to name it before God. This. I want you to say sorry for it. Repent of it. Turn away.
Say, no, I don't want to go that way. That attitude, that action, that thing, whatever it is. It could be bitterness. It could, it could be anything. I want you then to receive his forgiveness. Because God says, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's a given. It's a promise of God. So you can receive his forgiveness. And then I want you to choose to walk free of it and say, I'm going to do that. So I'm just going to give you a moment to do that, and then I'm going to kind of pray to finish. Jesus we want to thank you for your death and resurrection we want to thank you that is the point of unity for us all we thank you for your forgiveness you poured out on us Holy Spirit we thank you for convicting us of sin and calling us to a better life in you Lord Jesus we want to thank you for the miracle that is the church and what you've done here in this church in this place we thank you that we are connected with believers all around the world even right now who may be worshipping in different lands we're all part of one family one body one people Lord Jesus with you as our head as our Lord we want to say we love that and we praise that Lord of God and we say continue to do that miracle amongst us that we may be that unified people in you help us to fight for that that it works out in practice Lord Jesus help us to deal with relational tension with sin in our lives that we may be your beautiful bride in this place. God's people said, Amen. Amen.